0: Hello, this is RSA Radio. I'm Matthew Taylor. In this episode, we're going to be talking about accelerationism, an obscure but fascinating philosophy that says that rather than resisting the disorienting speed of modernity, we should give in to it, indeed, accelerate it. According to accelerationists, capitalism and technology are untamable. The only way out is through. It's an odd idea, but in various ways it helps to explain our contemporary moment. If nothing else, the speed of political change certainly seems to be increasing. I'm joined by Andy Beckett, who recently wrote a brilliant Guardian long read on this subject with the title, Accelerationism, How a Fringe Philosophy Predicted the Future We Live In. Andy, thanks for joining me. And I'm also joined by Ben Noyes, Professor of Critical Theory and English Literature at the University of Chichester. He actually coined the term accelerationism, and his book Malign Velocities is a critique of this line of thinking. And also we're joined by Nina Power, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Roehampton, who's also written critically about accelerationism and who's also going to help me to understand and unpick this idea. So Ben and Nina, thank you also for being here. So Andy, let's start with your Article. First of all, just where did it come from? Were you just commissioned to do it or was it something you wanted to write about?
1: The idea of it was around about a year ago at The Guardian. I was talking to a couple of my editors about doing something, a long piece about the kind of texture of modern life to do with devices and how people use them to do with etiquette, to do with the kind of pace of politics and work and how all those things in some ways seem to be speeding up. But we couldn't really work out how to do it journalistically so it wasn't too diffuse. So we just kind of parked the idea. And then this spring, we we're having a further conversation, and one of my bosses just said, well, okay, why don't we just write a piece about accelerationism, because that's a way to deal with some of that stuff. I've been aware of it a bit in its kind of 90s incarnation when I was a student, because I liked quite a lot of the same music that the accelerationists liked, and I was quite interested in technology then. I was living in California at the time. So... I suppose the combination of re-exploring some of those things that interested me 20 years ago and thinking about now, I just thought this is going to be quite a fun way to write 6,000 words.
0: It's actually quite interesting, isn't it, that you wanted to write about the kind of modern world and the way that it's changing, and you couldn't quite find a way of doing it. And then accelerationism offers us one way of understanding the world. So if you can, summarise what the core of the argument is.
1: The core of the piece is... Let's try and tell the story over 30 or 40 years of how this idea, accelerationism, this tendency, came into being and how it's become influential. So the the article kind of traces the origins of these ideas in Marx. Marx was very interested, as we all know, in the kind of dynamism of capitalism, as well as obviously criticising it. And that tendency on the left to kind of be fascinated by as well as horrified by capitalism, I'd argue in the piece has been around since Marx and it kind of resurfaced most strongly in the 70s in a, in a few French writers, Guattari, Deleuze, Jean-Francois Lyotard, who wrote these kind of heretical books in the early 70s, essentially saying that people on the left should stop trying to to resist capitalism but they should in some way embrace it, embrace its kind of liberating sort of chaotic possibilities and, and thus find their way to a new kind of version of politics that perhaps might not even be on the left. So those ideas were around a bit in the early 70s. I write about them. But then the idea really takes hold at the University of Warwick in the mid-90s with people like the philosopher Nick Land who explored it much more thoroughly um, and saw its manifestations in things like action films, drum and bass music, faster and faster music that was being enabled by technology. And I kind of tell the story in the article of the kind of almost the cult that grew up around Nick Land and at Warwick University, people studying these ideas, still not really calling themselves accelerationists, but celebrating kind of speed and technology and capitalism and and being in love with the thing that also kind of horrified them. And then the article kind of moves forward to the noughties and and even more recently where some people on the left begin to um, discover accelerationist ideas and people like Alex Williams and Nick Cernachek posit this idea that the left needs to think much harder about speed and technology and see the possibilities for liberation in things like automation in getting away from traditional capitalism into some kind of new automated capitalism. So the article kind of follows that story through the characters, through the development of those ideas and the way that these accelerationist ideas appear and then they kind of disappear and they resurface and why that is. And I guess it concludes by saying that there's a kind of tremendous danger in these ideas because they can lead you, from a Guardian point of view anyway, into quite dangerous territory of the far right, which is where Nick Land in some ways is now, but also that there's perhaps an unexplored potential there for a set of philosophical ideas that can speak to how we're actually living now. And quite early on in the research for the piece, I was talking to my girlfriend about it and she said, ''Oh, it's just a load of men, I'm drinking too much coffee and getting excited and writing.'' But actually, the more I researched it, I felt these ideas, even though I didn't like all of them, did resonate with how I was living and how people I knew were living. So it's not, I think, just a kind of esoteric, macho kind of movement. It's something that has a purchase on how we're living, Um, a very flawed purchase, but a purchase. And
0: what must have been great for you as a journalist is the human interest angles of this story. It was poignant to me because I was actually the Labour Party candidate for Leamington Spa in the 1992 election, and it occurred to me that I might have knocked on the door of where Nick Land and his kind of coterie were, you know, taking drugs, spending kind of 24 hours a day philosophising, writing on the walls. You know, that side of it is a fascinating part of the story.
1: Absolutely. And the people at Warwick University who were most involved with this, with Nick Land, were called the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit, which is a kind of real thing to conjure with on the internet. If you look it up, there's endless pieces written about it. And yeah, they ended up in Leamington Spa above a branch of the body shop in the sort of Georgian town centre of this slightly fading town, thinking about the future rather too hard. So that side of it gives it a kind of richness in terms of the characters and the places. It's not just a kind of abstract story.
0: So, Ben, Nina, I mean, I guess there's always a kind of ambivalence when a mainstream journalist takes something that you know about deeply as an academic and makes it more accessible to people. Do you think Andy did justice to the idea of
2: accelerationism in his piece? And what would you have wanted to add to it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the piece is a very fair piece, as Andy had said, a kind of discussion that engages with the major players, both pro and anti um, on, and in between. So I think it kind of garners quite a few views, which I tried to do in the book. I'm kind of also interested in these other historical resonances of accelerationism as a strategy, that it doesn't, just take place in Warwick and around the CCRU. That there are other kinds of situations that I talk about around Italian futurism, um, communist revolutions in the 20th century, uh, strategies around, as we've just discussed, dance music, um, electronic music. So I'm not just interested in Nick Land and the CCRU, whether they're a very direct articulation of the desire to accelerate and to punch through the self, really to kind of dissolve the self into these fluxes and flows of capitalism.
0: Would you agree with that, Nina, that, that in a sense we need to understand accelerationism as the latest or, or one variant of a kind of a recurring theme in ideas of modernity?
3: There's often this kind of impulse for a kind of technophilia, you know, love of technology, a kind of, you know, fascination with kind of speeding things up, making things kind of more exciting. And I think we have to acknowledge there's something kind of very seductive about it. There's something seductive about posthumanism, transhumanism, thinking about how we can merge the human with the robot or with technology or, you know, these, these ideas of, you know, cybernetics, I guess, used to be the, the term people used. I think it's enormously seductive for people in Silicon Valley, for example, you know, and I think they're very influenced, obviously, by kind of accelerationist ideas, both on the left and on the right. And we have to think carefully about these different political strands of accelerationism. It can veer to the right in people, figures like Nick Land, but there's also kind of interesting debates around left accelerationism, which are really trying to deal with these kind of serious questions about the future of work, for example. You know, what impact will automation have on employment, you know, and on these kind of big questions that do affect millions of people?
0: Taking that point forward, Nina, that, that, where do you situate accelerationism in the kind of cosmology of political ideas? As you say, it's, it, it has this kind of promiscuous feel because it, 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 it can be adopted by people with kind of alt-right views, with revolutionary left views. As you say, there's a kind of link to a kind of Silicon Valley view which is which is expounded by kind of monopoly capitalists. So how much use is an idea which can be repurposed in so many ways?
3: One way of looking at it is to think about the role of Marx and, and the fragment on the machines, this famous fragment which can be read in multiple different ways. So in a way you can trace it back to kind of a sort of Marxist almost ambivalence really about what capitalism can do in terms of the kind of productivity and advances that it, that it does bring about and the kind of destruction of tradition and all of those things which, you know, we can't really think about communism without thinking about what capitalism does as well, historically. So I think, yeah, we can think of it as coming from Marx, but just very, very different from different positions, really.
0: And that, it seems to me, is one of the kind of interesting things of your. Part of the kind of more mainstream left is that there is a kind of assumption that what the left is about is restraining capitalism, Ben. But this this is a different idea, and of course, it, it is an idea that reflects Marx, which is that it's only when you, when capitalism is you know fully developed, that we can expect to move to a post-capitalist society.
2: I mean, I would tend to argue that accelerationism is a strategy rather than something like an idea. You know, it's a it's a kind of mode of implementation by by its own definition to accelerate, and I guess a lot depends on then what what is being proposed to be accelerated and by whom and and to what end. But I definitely think, as Nina's saying, it speaks to these sort of contradictions of not just capitalism, but capitalist modernity, this kind of desire to enter a new age, back to the kind of French Revolution. Um, I think it's Robespierre said, you know, there is a duty to accelerate the revolution. Once you're in a kind of revolutionary moment, how do you keep that going? And then in the 19th century, the obsession with the idea of progress, as people have said, you know, virtually everyone in the 19th century Inhabits uh, a thinking of progress, um, and not just Marx, but also, as Nina can talk about as well, Nietzsche being a kind of key figure. You know, Nietzsche's idea of uh, European nihilism, the values are becoming kind of equalized and emptied, and then he sees that as a process that also needs to be accelerated to kind of empty out values to kind of achieve something new. So there's this dual, at least, context of um, thinkers that produce these ideas that then get enacted you know, in, in different ways. And I think that's why it's so kind of promiscuous, because it's a strategy that can be taken up at various points and by the left. I know this is a
0: tough question, but have a go at explaining to us the difference between left accelerationism and right accelerationism.
2: I think the simplest way to think about it is right accelerationists are accelerating capitalism. So there's only one subject, capitalism and they're pushing that further and further forward. So this is the kind of technological, neoliberal kind of model. So you're accelerating that uh, by immersing yourself within it. And it's assumed capitalism goes on forever. Yeah, I mean, in Nickland it goes into some kind of weird things, so it becomes a kind of monstrous, terrifying thing that will undo and destroy the earth in one sense, but that's kind of what they're almost welcoming. There's a kind of uh, enjoyment in the sort of nihilism of capital, that capital doesn't care about there's nothing after
0: it then, in other words.
2: No, it's a kind of absolute horizon, except almost to kind of realise it to its absolute extent, you know, to make it the purest kind of capitalism you can have. And then I think the left accelerationists, obviously, as we've been talking about, have kind of abandoned the term largely. I mean, I think their argument would be that it's important to engage with abstraction, modernity, technology, to repurpose those things for a left-wing project of hegemony. This is their kind of argument that they want to organise on a mass scale, so precisely rejecting kind of localist, organicist, what they call folk political solutions. So that would be the kind of core of their programme. But I think what they share, in a sense, is this this vision of a kind of mastery or a desire to kind of master everything, You know, whether it's from one side or the other. Nina, would you share that account of the difference?
3: Yes, definitely. And I, I think it's it's really about where the human is situated, you right. know, whether you want to kind of go beyond and destroy the human, uh, you know, through technology or, or whatever, or whether you actually want to kind of improve people's lives as human beings and, and have a sort of almost humanist politics in a way. And I think many of the left accelerationists do for all of their talk of the future. They, they remain kind of humanist in many senses.
0: You know, as somebody who spent their entire life in kind of a world of policy wonkery, I know how incredibly hard it is to make ideas interesting to anybody. It's quite a, an effective strategy, isn't it, to connect progressive politics to excitement about the modern world rather than continuously kind of being kind of glum and, 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 and almost nostalgic, which, which tends to be the tone of the left at the moment.
1: Yes, it is. I mean, the word accelerate itself is quite an exciting sort of sexy word, as Ben says, I think, in his book, that it has a kind of allure. And yes, for a lot of people on the left, I think, especially younger people... The idea that the left is just about kind of sort of organic food and kind of doing things more slowly is, you know, not necessarily that appealing. What about the kind of texture of life as we live it and and how can the left connect with that? And some people on the left, like Jeremy Gilbert, will argue quite persuasively that the left only is effective when it has a kind of modernity element in what it's selling. So like the Attlee Manifesto in 1945 was very forward looking. It wasn't all about, oh, let's go back to the 19th century to William Morris or whatever. It was about let's have a new Britain. So I think there's a kind of interesting sort of lost tradition of people on the left, even in the Labour Party, which is meant to be rather stodgy and boring, actually being quite interested in modernity in the 40s, again in the 70s, and, you know, arguably some of the people involved in the Corbyn project now, perhaps not Corbyn himself, but some of the younger people are quite interested in technology and modernity. They're not, it's not about putting the brake on, it's about something different, and I think that is something that the left maybe needs to rediscover.
0: It occurs to me it's not just strategy, it's also tactics. When I was involved in the New Labour project, we were very keen to be able to co-opt technology and science as being part of, of that project. David Cameron, when he came in, was very, very keen to spend a lot of time with people at Silicon Roundabout and kind of tech entrepreneurs. I'm wondering, you Nina, know, that this attempt to say our politics is the politics aligned with technology, given the ubiquity of technology, that's going to be with us going forward, isn't it, in our politics?
3: I think so. Um, I mean, you know, automation is happening. You know, it's already happening. We have to think about what this means for employment, what it means for the future of, you know, talking about universal basic income, which is a kind of left accelerationist um, proposal. I mean, my critique of this kind of thinking, primarily about technology and automation, though, is that it it kind of neglects, you know, vast amounts of paid and unpaid work in the form of care work. You know, and and there's many many jobs that can't be automated. And I think these kind of slightly hyperbolic claims of full automation, you know, in a way don't kind of appreciate that. They're not they're not paying attention actually to that work which is kind of going on all the time and is very gendered and very racialised. You know, and, it, and it, because it's not maybe exciting enough for you know, you know, and I think feminists have long been arguing, you know, making uh, the point that that all this work, you know, often unpaid work, you know, is absolutely central to the reproduction of of everyday life. You know, we can't live without, you know, reproducing ourselves in in, in the uh, in the widest possible sense of that word. You know, what it what it takes to actually get someone ready for work. You know, to 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 feed oneself to or to to feed others, to look after others, and so on. You know, and there's there's you know billions of hours of that kind of work and it can't be automated and i think there's a big ethical question there too about what we would like to see automated and what cannot be i'm very critical of the idea of sort of care robots for example the idea of dealing with the aging population by kind of handing it over to machines you know there's big big ethical problems i think
0: and you've written a lot about the kind of dangers of these ideas yeah Talk to us a bit about what you see as the kind of dark side of accelerationism and and why, in a sense, there is something inherent in it as a set of ideas, which means that we shouldn't be surprised that it could be easily adopted by they alt-right, for example.
2: I think this comes back to the question you were asking about technology. I mean, as Nina's saying, there's a side of work, but also I think there are uh, things embedded in technology. Technology is not as neutral as I think accelerationists often suppose, and I tend to see that there's a lot more kinds of social relations embedded in the technological forms that we use, including kind of computer programs. There's been quite a lot of very interesting research on, say, like the way search algorithms and financial algorithms like for credit ratings turn out to be racist. <laughs> you can have a racist algorithm because mm-hmm. the the design embeds social assumptions and social relations. So I think, you know, my problem starts in some ways with the treatment of technology that doesn't consider its kind of histories... And complexities, and when you look at the work, and that's why, for example, you might get enthusiasm for these ideas in Silicon Valley because they are the yeah. kind of technological determinism of, well,
0: whatever can be invented should be invented, whatever can be sold should be sold, is attractive. Exactly. I mean, you know,
2: if you're saying it's just an iPhone, it's just a, it's just a product that you can use. You know, drones are a good example, which I've done some research on. The emphasis on hobby drones is kind of interesting because. It, which I would agree with. It's often argued this is a way of kind of familiarizing us, making us feel happy about drones, you know, kind of ignoring the primary military applications. So you'll see quite a lot of focus by people who manufacture drones on their civilian usages. So there'll be focuses on their uses by farmers in Japan, interesting around aging population. So there's a tendency to kind of fit with this image of technology as neutral and happy. Yeah, which yeah. I think kind of precludes a more critical examination. So, it's part of this about the accelerationist idea is that in a sense that you can leap out of traditional
0: categories of left and right, but the technology just makes so many of those debates irrelevant, but in a sense, what I'm hearing here is actually the critical kind of philosophical divides between left and right have to be applied to technology. There's nothing about technology or its pace or its complexity which takes us away from the fact we still have to talk about issues like you know, equality and, and justice and who's doing the work.
3: Yeah, and I think if we're talking about technology, you know, I mean being an end user of a phone or a computer is, is the long end of a very kind of violent process, you know, I mean the, the way in which kind of the components and so on are mined and, and manufactured, you know, the suicides at Foxconn Factory, you know, it can't be possibly seen as a neutral um you know and if, if we think about the model of energy that's presupposed by an image of automation you know it does depend upon fossil fuels it does depend upon a kind of very destructive image which we, we might also really want to rethink you know if we if we want to automate all these things you know where is the energy going to come from you know and might we not actually need to kind of think about the the technologies of energy itself and not fetishizing stuff and technology as such you know do we really need all this stuff given it's destructive
2: to come back to this kind of question around also around machismo and kind of aesthetics, you know, I mean, I do think there is a kind of problematic kind of reveling in a kind of disintegration of the self. So the irony is, as i sort of said before, it's a kind of machismo of self-dissolution. It's kind of exploding the self, dissolving the self uh, into things, into processes, into fluxes and flows. And again, that isn't a kind of neutral operation. And there's attached that are kind of aesthetic values about integration with the machinic that presuppose mastery. And it's this irony that they're sort of saying we're going to dissolve ourselves, we're going to integrate. At the same time, there's still a kind of image of mastery taking place. So as I say about Nick Land, it's like a cult of non-personality. You know, It's not a cult of personality, but a cult of disintegrating ourselves. And then everyone's talking about Nick Land. So you can see the kind of paradox of a sort of... Uh, movement that's dedicated to dissolution that actually results in these kind of re these hierarchical figures.
0: One one particular issue I'd like us to address as we draw to a close, I think it's Ryan Avent who, who wrote in a recent book about automation, and he talked about the, the concept of the Engels pause, you know, the idea that in a way... Um, you know, the Luddites were right in the sense that the living standards of working class people declined for kind of two or three generations after the first round of Industrial Revolution before it started to pay off in terms of improved wages and improved social wage. And his point would be, well, you know, it was possible to kind of keep working class resistance at bay for 50 years in those days because there wasn't democracy, there wasn't social media, you know, the, the, the king had the army any politician now who was to say to people, well, look, put up with technological dislocation because it won't be good for you, it won't be good for your kids, but it's going to be great for your... Gr-. And that's not a viable political strategy. So just going around the table, starting with you, Andy, what, in terms of the kind of balance of optimism and hope or fear, where do you think progressives should be pitching our tent when it comes to technological change at the moment?
1: I think that there should be a bit of optimism because it does seem that technology is determined by politics and prejudice, as Ben argues quite rightly, but equally that means that it it doesn't have to be encoded purely for the benefit of the right, if you like. There's no particular reason why devices, high technology, has to be something that only benefits the Rupert Murdoch's of this world. So I think, you know, it can go any way. So I suppose there's grounds for optimism there. But I also do worry about the environmental costs of all this stuff. And I also worry about the left's ability to kind of be nimble and sort of use social media as effectively as the right has done. Maybe that will come, but I think apart from in the, in the current, you know the recent general election in Britain, there's yet to be much evidence that the right, particularly in America, I think it exploits it better because it's less squeamish and better at rude sound bites and so on. So I still think these sort of technologies are probably benefiting the right more than the left at the moment. But so it do- sounds
0: to me as though you, you think the imperative for the left is, it is actually the critiquing of technology rather than succumbing to the kind of breathless enthusiasm of exaggerationism for example?
1: I think succumbing to some of it is okay but yeah I think the critique has still got to go a lot further. I mean while we've got these companies in Silicon Valley producing this stuff who claim to be liberal but aren't paying any tax you know in my cosmology of politics that situates them on the right not the left and that's the kind of industrial complex that's producing most of this stuff. They're not, it's not being produced by Mercedes-Benz, it's being produced by essentially a kind of libertarian small state you know industrial kind of concentration and, and and until that changes, the technology probably will be encoded with the kind of values of the right. And know, and where do you think the left should be situating itself?
3: Well, I mean, I think we should, you know, be thinking about people's needs first and foremost. And I think if we're talking about technology in the broadest sense, you know, we have millions of people living in unsafe houses, for example. You know, where technology's (laughs) been misapplied, been misused in the name of profit, you know, and against people in that sense. So I think yes, it's kind of important. We need to think about automation. We need to think about the way in which social media kind of rules our lives in many ways, um, and how that could be be used by politicians. I think I mean Jeremy Corbyn is becoming immensely popular, viral figure actually i i think uh you know and that's is partly spread through social media in many ways but actually the values he is advocating are old social democratic humanist values and if we are going to think about technology we need to think about it in terms of basic needs you know housing um food and, and in a global sense as well you know not just the kind of rich west and use end users consumers but the impact that technology has and where there are solutions that could help more people the redistribution of food for example
0: and Ben then finally, with you, one of the things that's fascinating about accelerationism, still the fact that that, that one of the things that motivates us to people is politi- involved in politics, is the possibility of complete social transformation, you know and and that doesn't you know it, it does feel a lot of politics now is a largely a nostalgic project. Is it possible to talk about that possibility of complete social transformation facilitated by technology without falling into the traps of accelerationism?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's interesting as we're talking. You know, the the, and I've had lots of conversations about accelerationism, the way in which it's defined. So, famously, someone said to me, "Do you like technology?" And I said, "Well, yes, I've got a phone." You know, and they're like, "Well, you're an accelerationist." You know, if it's posed at this sort of banal level, then I th- I think it it dissolves. You know, it becomes meaningless. I actually see left and right and centre in the UK and everywhere else engaged with technology. I think it's their visions are fairly much guided by emerging forces of of technology. At the same time, like you say, I mean, there are visions of the future that aren't accelerationist, and you know, there are visions, uh, you know, around you know, post carbon economies, um, using technologies to kind of facilitate interactions. Uh, I mean, Nick's recent work on platform capitalism is also partly an attempt to kind of rework the notions of platforms, of kind of different ways of doing things. I don't think we lack visions of the future. We lack visions of how to get there. You know, so we can have visions of the future. It's what concerns me are the strategies and actions now. How are you going to realise that? So that's been one of my big problems with accelerationism is who is doing the accelerating and to whom or to what. As I say in the book, I think my concern is what I call the decommodification of people's lives, that we shouldn't be everything becoming a commodity. So, you know, particularly to follow on Nina's list, you know, power water, housing, you know, the whole question of property, who owns the means of production, to ask the old question. So I think there is a redistributive program that needs to be enacted. You know, I mean, this is the irony of our moment. We've had a long period of basically fairly right-wing dominance in the country, a kind of shift to the right. And I think even small reformist measures would look Transformatory compared to the current situation, so I think that's one of the kind of interesting things that we're finding it hard to imagine nationalising the railways, things that we we had before. So, mm. so, you know, I I don't see those ideas as unsexy compared to kind of sexy technological integration because I just think they're linked together. I think where to me accelerationist thinking is right is that people
1: on the left or on the right for that matter have to engage with life as it's actually lived now. And I think a lot of left stuff from the 90s onwards that was about essentially slowing down, getting away from technology. A lot of that stuff I reported on, I was even involved in. Hmm. To me, some of that was a bit of a dead end because it didn't really speak to life as it was being lived by most people most of the time. Even the anti-roads protests that I reported on a lot, you'd go there and I was fully in favour of them. But then people would all drive to get there. you know. And there was some sense in which people were in denial about the extent that technology was important in their lives. And I think... People in politics have, to some extent, to adapt their politics to lived realities. And lived realities don't have to be hyper-fast all the time, but they are sometimes. And politics, I think, has to acknowledge that. Otherwise, it it does become a kind of a bit of a niche, kind of, you know, organic, artisan kind of thing, um, which ultimately is not enough to win you an election. We've only scratched the surface of a
0: fascinating debate and set of issues. Do have a read of Andy's Guardian Long Read. Ben Noy's book, Malign Velocities, is published by Zero Books. And Nina has also written extensively on accelerationism. Andy Beckett, Ben Noyes, Nina Power. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. This programme has been an RSA and Resonance production. To get future episodes, subscribe to RSA Radio wherever you get your podcasts from.